Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey church, how's it going today, everybody? <clears throat> Sorry. Hey, look at you guys. Whew, I need you guys to wake me up in the morning is what I need. It'd be very helpful. Uh, hey, if you, thanks for joining us today, whether in person or online, we're glad you're you're with us. If you're new with us, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the, the senior pastor here, and uh, we're excited to have you. We're marching through the book of Titus. We're going to be at the end of Titus 1 today, so you can flip there or click there, or it'll be on the screens as well. <clears throat> but, um, but before we get to that, just a reminder, like Pastor Jeff said, we got, we got fall carnival in one week, and so uh, a lot of details and different things like that coming together, as you would assume. And so you've, you've got young ones or old ones or just you, you just want to come hang out with us. Uh, we got free food. We got uh, pumpkin launching. Um, and I'm really excited. We're adding an element to our pumpkin launching this year. Um, and so I'm not going to give it away, but uh, you should come and be a part of uh, launching some pumpkins with us. Um, but uh, we got crafts. We got bounce houses. And of course, uh, just candy, as much candy um, as the eye can see. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so that's in one week. If you have not yet signed up to volunteer, we need your help, man. We got uh, two years ago, the last time we did this event, we had over 700 people on our campus, which was awesome, but uh, that's a whole lot of people to manage. Um, and so uh, if you want to help out, uh, you can go online, you can go to the app, or you can go visit our guest services table out front, and they'll take care of you as, uh, as well. So um, as, you're, uh, as you're getting to Titus 1, uh, I want you to think about uh, some of the teachers that you've had in your life. For some of you, that's way back. Uh, for some of you, it was just a couple years ago. Uh, but some of the teachers that, that you have had. Think about, think about your favorite teacher that you have ever had. Yeah, I, had a, I had a couple different teachers. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I said favorite teacher. Not your favorite teacher, excuse me. Your greatest teacher. Think of your greatest teacher, because I do think those two things are, are very, very different, because when I was in junior high, my, uh, my favorite teacher was Mr. Gannon. I wanted to get into Mr. Gannon's class, because everybody knew if you got into Mr. Gannon's class, you didn't have to do anything, right? You sat there, you, uh, you didn't have to do any work. Uh, his lesson plan came out of the newspaper for the morning, right? The elective I was in was called political science, and he would just open up his paper and, and say, hmm, let's talk about this controversial topic today, and then we would sit there and talk about it, and it was ridiculous. Everybody was guaranteed an A. Um, and, uh, and so he was my favorite teacher in junior high, uh, but, but he definitely was not my, uh, my, my greatest teacher. Uh, the best teacher, the greatest teacher I ever had was an older lady who was a diehard Cowboys fan, which is really hard in 1995 because the Cowboys and the 49ers were arch, arch enemies at that point. Um, but her name was, uh, was Miss Cavazos, Miss Cavazos, and, and I did not like her when I was in fifth grade. It was, it was hard to like Miss Cavazos, and most of it was my fault, to be fair, right? Because growing up, I was never a good student. I was a fast student. I was not a good student, right? So like I would get the assignment and my goal was to be the first person to complete that assignment so I no longer had to do that assignment anymore. Didn't, didn't matter whether it was right or wrong. The assignment was done. I've done the bare minimum to be able to, to, to finish that thing. And so assignments to me were less about, about learning uh, and more about not having to do the, uh, the assignment anymore. So I'm like eight to ten weeks or so into uh, my time in Ms. Cavazos' class, and, 
And um, we, we sat down and we had to have a, a parent-teacher conference, right? It was that parent-teacher conference time, which all students always look forward to. And I'll teach. no one likes parent-teacher conferences. Can we just be real? Teachers, parents, students, everybody hates them. Um, and so uh, my, my mom worked at the school, though, which meant that my parent-teacher conference got to be right before school because my mom was there. Hey, let's just get it knocked out, you know, whatever. And so also because my mom worked at the school and it was before school, I couldn't be out at recess yet because the school wasn't technically open. So that meant I got to sit in on the parent-teacher conference with uh, my mom and, and Miss Cavazos. Um, and uh, we were all sitting around a, uh, a, a conference table and uh, we had a conversation and Miss Cavazos, some of the first words she said, she looked right at me and she said, Peter, you are lazy. It was good. It was a good way to start my day. Um, but then she droned on for like five minutes about other things. I don't know. I wasn't paying attention anymore at that point because all I heard at that point was, Peter, you are lazy. And now remember, this is hard for me because I am a millennial, which means I grew up being told I was great by everybody, right? Like no one told me the truth ever. Everybody was like, oh, you're so good. You're so awesome. Um, and so then, of course, when she said it, I started crying. Um, and then afterwards, uh, you know, in the hallway, um, when all of my friends were starting to show up, my mom looks at me and she said, your father and I are going to have a conversation about this later on. And I started crying again. So I like cried twice before I even started my, uh, my school day. Um, and uh, it was not good. But then I got to school the, the following week. I remember it was towards the end of the week. The following week and I was just like, I'm going to work as hard as I could to not just finish first, but actually, you know, doing doing the assignments to the best of my ability. So I say all of that because at the time, Ms. Cavazos was, was legitimately my least favorite teacher. Some of you probably have people like this in your life. And she, was, she, she ended up being my favorite teacher now looking back, not because she was easy on me, but she is my favorite teacher because she knew what was right and knew I was underperforming and called me on it. She was willing to have a hard conversation, to step into that, and call me onto the carpet. And so for you, maybe it's not, it's not a teacher uh, who has done that. Maybe it's an employer who has done that. Most likely it's probably one of your parents at some point who has said that uh, to you. Maybe it was a pastor. I don't know who it was for you to be able to call you out, but we tend to respect the people in our lives who know what is right and call you to it. That's an important piece of, uh, of being a Christian as well. So think about that person in your life. Or maybe a time where, where, you, were, where you were angry, uh, you, you were upset, you thought this isn't fair, how dare they say that about me. But as time kind of continues to move on, you, you recognize that person isn't only telling the truth, but you respect that person even more because it took courage then to tell you the truth. I'm sure most of us probably could think of some sort of example in that way. And it's those hard conversations that, that we as Christians like to avoid oftentimes, right? Because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to rock, rock the boat. We don't want someone to think poorly of us because what if we, we rock the boat too much? Because what if this conversation we feel like we feel like is worth having to help them be a better person, help them be a better follower of Jesus. They end up turning away from God altogether. And then at that point, man, I've completely and totally blown it. And then even worse than that, what if they don't like me anymore because of it? 
right? These are all the things that go through our head. For whatever reason, we're stuck in this perpetual state of high school popularity oftentimes. It's like I'm very, very concerned whether or not they like me and, and are not concerned enough about whether or not we are being honest with them and telling the truth and calling them to something greater. And we fret and we worry about it even though our heart's desires as Christians should be to live and speak more boldly for Jesus. I mean, the question really is, is how badly do we want that? Do we want it enough to, to wait for God to answer us and take, take those kind of risks to press on in our timidity? Or if we're honest, would we rather just, just keep wishing we were, we were bolder, admiring bold people from afar, putting bold people's quotes on our Facebook page, um, being inspired by biographies about bold people, talking with our friends and small group members about our struggles with kind of fear of man, all the while staying where we feel safe, staying where we feel relatively comfortable and letting fear go unchallenged. Right, because really, we, we like that, that second option with a more flattering description. Right? The, the Holy Spirit really tells us regularly, if you want to walk with me, choose to honor me. Be with me. And when we call people to greatness by pointing out the truth of what God is doing, we are doing the church a favor. Right? We, are, we are creating more potency in the body by sharpening one another as we lead into a culture that we have largely turned our backs on. And just to juxtapose all of this, my fifth grade story, as I was talking with Pastor Jeff about my hook and how I was going to get you guys all to relate, Jeff was like, hey, let me tell you what my fifth grade teacher told about me. I was like, okay, man, that's another, okay, so fifth grade teachers are just the worst. We can all just agree on it, right? No, no, Jeff was like, my fifth grade teacher at the end of the year wrote my mom a note. And on the note, it said, losing Jeff is going to be like losing the setting from a diamond ring. Yeah, I know. Haven't talked to Jeff in a couple days. It's just like, oh, okay, congrats, Jeff, on being that guy. But then we, then we decided it's because Jeff was the oldest, like driven, had to accomplish. Like he was the people pleaser and I'm the baby in the family. And so I'm like, do what I want, right? Um, anyway, so Paul, Paul does this though. He, he is going to call people uh, to the carpet and give strict instructions to, to this young pastor, Titus. And Titus, as, as he leads this church on the, on the island of Crete. And so before we get to the passage, one more, one more piece. Let's, let's do a quick reminder as to what is going on specifically on the island of Crete. If you want more context for this, two weeks ago when we introduced this series, we introduced the book of Titus. There's a lot more context there. But the Cretan culture, what we have to understand is obsessed with Zeus and the Greek gods because they're off the coast of Greece, right? And supposedly Zeus was born on the island of Crete. But beyond that, there's a, a small faction of believers. They, they get a church started out there. And, and, and it doesn't tell us how the church got started or where it got started from or anything like that. There's some theories. But there is, there is a church there. And two things are happening. The church is being overrun by people who are acting like Cretans, which is where we get that word Cretan from, okay? You'll see what this means in just a second when I get into the text. Beyond that, there's a group of teachers 
who have, have come in and who are telling the people of Crete that they need to get circumcised to be able to become a Christian. You need to, you need to essentially what they're saying is you need to become a Jew first, and then after you are a Jew, you can then become a Christian, which is not true. It's contrary to the gospel of Jesus that he put forth. And this is because in order to be marked as a follower of Christ in the Old Testament, before Jesus walked around on the earth, men had to be circumcised. And Paul dealt with this issue a lot in the book of Galatians as well as the book of Romans. So Paul is not happy with the way that things are going so far. And the entire reason for this letter is to ensure that Titus does the things he is supposed to do as a leader to ensure that the church is healthy and to ensure that the church is doctrinally sound. That's the whole reason this letter is being written to Titus so he doesn't get swept up. Paul sees his potential much in the same way that Miss Cavazos saw my potential. And so Paul isn't going to hold back here in Titus. Okay? So now that we have context established, let's get into the passage starting in verse 10. In chapter 1, you can follow along. It will also be on the screen. It says, For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Okay, so let's press pause right here. Okay, Paul right now, he's talking about the teachers specifically. If you think back to last week, Pastor Jeff spent a lot of time talking about the qualification of elders. So what we have here is Paul is saying, hey, look. Here's what you have to know in order to put people as elders in your church. Now, because of all of that, or, or, or they need to be elders because of what we are about to read right now. So he's talking specifically about teachers. It says they must be silenced, verse 11, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not teach, and that for the sake of dishonest, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it: Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. The saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything Good. So again, verses 5 through 9 of Titus is going to talk about elders, right? It's going to talk about how important the, the elders is and this is what an elder looks like and all of that, all of that stuff. And it says, hey, look, you have to be without blame because, so verses 5 through 9, because there are a bunch of rebellious teachers who all they do is talk and deceive especially those people who want to see everyone be circumcised, even though once Jesus came onto the scene, it was no longer, no longer necessary. And so in verse 11, Paul goes on to even tell Titus, hey, these people who are being dishonest, they're being dishonest for, for the sake of their own personal gain, they have to be silenced. Not, hey, you need to encourage them to change their theology. Not, hey, why don't you, let's grab a cup of coffee and chat. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. These people, these teachers, they have to be silenced. These rebellious people, it's noted in verse 10, are apparently numerous. So there's a lot of them. And are characterized by, by three very undesirable qualities. They're rebellious first and foremost, meaning they, they know what is right, but they choose to do what is not right. right? They know what it is, but they choose not to. Anybody have kids? All right? Here we go. Rebellion. 
Okay? I'm going, I, you, you know what is right. The kids know what is right because they have lived in your household the entirety of their lives. They understand the rules. They understand the expectations. They understand what it is they're supposed to be doing. They understand the way they're supposed to conduct themselves on trips. They're at school whenever they are apart from you, even when they are with you oftentimes. And then they fall short of that. That's rebellion. That's the same thing that we have going on here. Beyond that, these teachers, it says their talk is meaningless and completely deceitful. Meaningless. Anybody watch like press conferences after, after sporting events or before sporting events or just about sporting events, right? Have you guys seen these press conferences where they're like, hey, tell us what happened tonight. And athletes are the best at saying a whole lot and not saying anything at all. Like I've stopped watching them because, because they'll ask the, the reporters ask the same question over and over and over again. And then the, the, the athletes will be like, yeah, it was, a, it was a good game. And, you know, we just need to continue to work the game plan that we have in our minds. Right? And like it sounds good. You're like, oh, yeah, there's some, con- yeah, they do. They, he's right. They do. They do need to do that. It sounds like he said something of value, but really he didn't offer up any insight at all. Like I could have walked, like I could have taken the place of that athlete in the press conference. Right? If the press came up and asked me and said, hey, what do, you think, what do you think the Dodgers need to do better this postseason? And the answer would be they need to not lose. They got booted last night. I don't feel bad about that at all. So, but, but that's what's going on here. There's a whole bunch of deceitful talk. There's a whole bunch of things like they are just talking for the sake of talking. They are offering, offering absolutely nothing of Value. They're saying things that sound good, sound like they're offering insight, but they're not preaching the gospel of Jesus to the fullest extent. So Paul's like, hey, look, they gotta be, they gotta be silenced. Right? The Greek word here it means it means talkers. It, it contained the idea of worthlessness. And we don't get that in the in the word-for-word translation. Okay, but it but it means worthlessness. And lastly, it says about these people, it says that they are, they are self-deceived and because, of the dece- and because of that, deceive others. So they're self-deceived, meaning they were deceived by what is true or, or by, by what is not true, rather. And so in turn, they are now deceiving other people. Like they flipped it on its head. And so part of me is like, well, hold on. If they've been deceived themselves, can we really get that upset at them? Like, do we really need a clean house? Paul, like, do you really need to silence those people? And the answer is yes. You can't allow somebody who does not understand the truth of the gospel to preach a distorted version of the gospel, even if it is going to hurt their feelings when you correct them. That's not okay. There's incredible amounts of churches who are still still doing this today. Right, what they say, it, it sounds good, but ultimately is, is extra biblical, meaning it's not in the Bible. And then beyond that, probably heretical. People who promote things like, like demon exercising, you know, demons are behind all of our, all of our problems. And I, I think there is a spiritual world and I think demon exorcism is real. But they think that, that, that as victorious Christian living, and, and they teach that we need to be saved and born again. You have to be saved once and you have to be born again, not just one or the other. We need to learn how to identify different demons. We need to be able to cast out those specific demons. And, and everything revolves around demons rather than everything revolving around Jesus. And you think about it and you're like, oh, wait, there's some truth to that. Correct. It's those small distortions that are the issue. 
It's the, oh yeah, Jesus, he was, he, he, he was great, he's the son of God, and, and he went to the cross, and he died on the cross, but then he rose again, and all you have to do is believe in your heart and confess your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and get circumcised, and you'll be saved. Right, and all of it sounds good, like, like you could walk on stage, somebody could walk on stage and offer that small distortion, and most people wouldn't bat an eye. But there's a distortion there. I mean, beyond, beyond that, a man in New York promoted the idea that, that you could lose your salvation and that you needed to move on to deeper levels of Christian maturity by speaking in tongues, casting out demons, and participating in healing services. And if you didn't do these things, it was evidence that you're not saved. It's just a small, it's a small distortion. And the worst one, the, the worst one that I have no tolerance for is men and women all over the world promote the idea that if you give the church, if you give the pastor, if you give the preacher, whatever it may be, lots of money, the more money, the better, that they will pray for you to be healed, that you will get a job and you will become wealthy, that it is always, 100% of the time, God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy and wise. And so whenever you suffer, it's a sign that God is judging you. And people fall into that trap. I'm just like, oh yeah, that makes sense. All of a sudden we've mixed Christianity and karma together. And it's like, oh yeah, if I do something good there, God's going to bless me with this. That's not to say, that's, like, it's possible, but that's not doctrinal, right? And so there's these small distortions that are even happening today, and none of these things are true, but they all sounded kind of like the gospel. In the churches on Crete, people were spreading these extra-biblical stories and extra-biblical kind of rules. Paul even cites one of the, the Cretan prophets, to nail down his point about these people in the church, right? It says that in the middle of that passage, he says, they are, they are liars, they are evil brutes, and they are lazy gluttons. Paul's not holding back here. Paul recognizes the potential of the church in Crete. And at the end of our lives, like our hope, my hope would be that you have no potential. That's a weird, a weird way to phrase that, right? Because everybody always wants to be full of potential. At the end of my life, I want my potential to be completely expelled from me. I have nothing left to give. I have nothing left to offer. I left everything out on the table. And so at the end of the day, I'm just, man, man I'm, I'm sitting in my chair and God's like, hey, look, I, yeah, I, I can't do anything more with you, man. You've expended everything that I've given you. You've expended every gift that I have given you. And so because of that, hey, it's time to come home. Right? That's what I want to be at the end of my life. My hope is, is that, that, that your goal is zero potential in your life. Because we want to use it all for the glory of God, the gifts, the offer, everything that God has given you, your talents, all of those things, that we would use them to continue to point people back to Jesus and so Paul, man, he's got, he's got some strong medicine for these people, for these teachers who are distorting the truth because he recognized, again, the potential that this church has. He says in verse 13, rebuke them sharply. He doesn't say it, though, just for the sake of rebuke, but rebuke them for their own good so that they will be sound in their faith. 
Rebuke them for their own good so they will be sound in their faith. I think Miss Cavazos was reading Titus 1 before my parent-teacher conference. Rebuke them for the sake of the gospel so they will be sound in their faith. Rebuke them because the potential of the church is too vast to not. Our doctrine, our theology is too important to not. Rebuke them so they know what it is they should believe about Jesus and they can move on it. They can use their potential. And then in in verse 15, the rubber meets the road with Paul's instructions specifically to Titus. He tells them why this is a big deal. He says, hey, this is a big deal. It says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. So if these people, if these teachers have bad theology, if these teachers are leading people astray, they have no faith. They have no correct belief. So correct their understanding of the gospel so things can be pure. So at that point, not only will they know what is true, but they can stop, de- stop deceiving other people with a distortion of what God would have for us. Calvin argued that those defiled could touch nothing without defiling it. So to them, nothing could be pure. Right, so you read this in Titus 1, and we all agree with it. Like, yeah, I know, that's a good point. You know, if they don't have the grace, like if they're defiled and they have a sin, you know, they're still sinning on on and on and on. Like, like we would agree with these things. But then we, we place these same expectations on people who don't believe these things. That's an issue. And so what, while most of us in here could agree with what, what, with what Paul was saying here, to pure all things are pure, but those who are corrupted and do not believe nothing is pure. So why is it, church, that we take our expectations of what we expect the church to look like and place it on people who have no faith? That doesn't make any sense. And beyond that, to to place those expectations on people who have no faith and do it in a way that is not honoring to Christ, that makes no sense. That's when people begin to start calling Christians hypocrites. That's when people get hardened to the things of Jesus. Because the church is all of a sudden placing expectations that they have onto people who have no, that they don't have any faith. There's no reason for us to be able to do that. We shouldn't do that. You know, when everybody always talks about, like, in the Bible it says, don't judge others. The Bible actually does say to judge people. You know that? That Christians, you guys are supposed to judge people. It's just people who are in the church that you're supposed to judge. It's the same thing Paul is doing here to the teachers of the church. Paul is saying, hey, look, I need to call these people onto the carpet because they're corrupting the gospel. None of this has anything to do with people who are outside of the faith. Paul never once tells Titus to rebuke non-believers in the name of Jesus. It's not how it works. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the New Testament will you see God tell somebody to judge people who are not a part of the faith. Nowhere. The body of Christ's responsibility is to hold up the body of Christ, to sharpen the body of Christ, not to sharpen the world 
Our job is to serve the world, not sharpen it. And as they become Christians, as they come into faith at that point, then we get to disciple them, we get to love them, and we get to have hard conversations with them for the sake of the body of Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here. And in verse 16, it really hits the nail on the head for uh, the current state of Christianity in America as well. It says this, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So we got to shift our focus. Again, this isn't talking about just Cretans who don't believe in God. These are people who are teaching the gospel on the island of Crete. They claim to know God, but their actions, but by their actions they deny him. That's hard. That's a hard sentence and it's a hard reality for us to come to in America and American churches. Like it or not, these teachers were really a part of the very same filth that American Christianity is dealing with today. We claim to know God, but by our actions, we deny him. We come to church on on Sunday, but our actions, even as we go to lunch afterwards, deny him. Did you know that, that a few years back, Gallup did a poll where 94% of Americans claim to believe in God. 94%. We're winning, guys. We're doing it, man. America, it's a Christian nation. Let's go. Like, man, and you can tell when you look at the state of our world how much much people honor and love God with their lives. Am I right? I mean, let's go. Turn on CNN. You guys will see how much we love each other. It's so good to see the transformational gospel at work in America. No, 94% of people claim that they believe in God and their actions deny him. Does it seem like 94% of Americans are acting like it, are acting like they believe in God? Absolutely not. And the good news is is that this this is nothing new. This, what's happening in our American culture today is nothing new. It's not an American issue. It's a Christian heart issue. And I don't know know why it is that we do this, right? In the book of Titus, it deals with it over and over and over again. Correct belief leads to correct action. And, And Jeff and I were talking earlier this week as I was putting my message together and We're talking about, man, why is it that we always, that Christians, we always try to complicate the gospel. We always try to make it harder than the gospel actually is. And so the question remains, where is it you stand today regarding your belief? Regarding your belief. Do you believe the the extra biblical nonsense of like, yep, I have to, I have to come to church and I have to do this entire checklist of things in order to have a, a relationship with Jesus, in order to make sure that I'm going to, to heaven. Is that, is that you or are you willing to stand by the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus and say as Galatians did over and over and over again, Jesus plus nothing? That's the real question. The reason I ask it that way is, is because I think the, the simplicity of the gospel is what really freaks people out. 
I think quite honestly, it can, it can throw people off to what it means to live a life according to, to biblical truth. Right? Lee Pritchard likes to, likes to say what, that we as people want to do, 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 do. And the gospel says, no, it's done. The simplicity of the gospel, it's over. It's finished. I think I told this story a few weeks back, but I think it's worth noting again is that I was serving on a mission trip and this van rolled up. It was the end of the week and um, they came out to feed all the kids in the neighborhood. And it was great and it was wonderful. And this pastor comes out and he says, hey, who wants to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. All right, I'm going to pray for you. And he prayed for these kids and all of those kids. And at the end of the prayer, he was like, great, you guys made it. You're all going to heaven. And then they went on playing, like no life change, no anything like that. And so I'm not saying that, that Paul is suggest, suggesting cheap grace here. I'm not saying that the gospel, like, like you can just accept Jesus in your heart and then everything, like pray a prayer that everything is good and you're going to heaven and all of that stuff. I'm saying you, you have to truly believe the, the simplicity of the gospel though. And he sees the simplicity of that gospel as paramount to the success of the church. It's incredibly important, and the simplicity of the gospel has to be taught, and the simplicity of the gospel has to be understood. And if you're new to church, this is, this is the simplicity of the gospel summarized. And maybe for those of you who have, who have been in church for a long time, here's a good, a good little reminder for you. Romans 3.23, it says that every single one of us was born a sinner and with a sin nature, meaning there is no way for you to be able to get to heaven on your own accord. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised. It doesn't matter if you follow the entire law of the Old Testament. It doesn't matter if you're nice to your neighbor. It doesn't matter if you give millions and millions and millions of dollars to the churches and nonprofits in the world. That will not earn you salvation. It's impossible. We're sinners in need of a Savior. But then everybody's favorite verse, John 3.16, says that God loved the world enough to send Jesus to the earth to take our sin upon himself so we could be with him forever. The simplicity of the gospel. And then we are able to have the gift of, of eternal life by doing nothing but having faith in Christ. Romans 3.28. And then Romans 10.10, the one I always talk about when I'm talking about baptism. Because let's be real, a lot of people confuse the idea of getting baptized with the idea of being saved. They're not the same thing. Romans 10.10 says, and we know that, essentially it says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you're going to go to heaven. That's it, period. Simplicity of the gospel. And Paul is doing his best to protect the Cretans from letting all of these other nonsense, this stuff about Zeus and this stuff about, about the Judaizers coming in and following the law and being a Jew and all. Like Paul's like, no, stay away from that. The gospel is simple. You're a sinner. Jesus came to take care of it. You believe in your heart and confess with your lips that he is the Lord of your life. Done. Not do. And it's our responsibility then to take it one step further because my assumption is most of you have prayed that prayer. Most of you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so most of you are on your way to heaven would be my assumption. And so now it's our responsibility as Christians to protect that simplicity from teachers, from other Christians, and from those who don't believe in God at all. We have to protect that simplicity. We have to protect that message. 
That's why the prosperity gospel is so damaging. Because it says, hey, Jesus will love you more. God will love you more if you give him more money. This is what Paul has the ability, and not just the ability, Paul has the audacity to remind Titus of. To protect the message of the gospel at all costs because people are going to mess with it. People are going to distort it. And people are going to destroy it. Rebuke those people so they will know the good news and others can know the good news as well. I'm, I'm so happy to say that Miss Cavazos didn't tell me I was lazy because she was mean. Miss Cavazos told me I was lazy because she knew how important it was going to be in my life to establish work ethic. She cared about me. And so because of the fact she cared about me, she called me onto the carpet. She was willing to be honest with me. She saw my potential and wanted me to achieve more than I was going to be able to if I stayed on that path. Paul saw Titus's potential, and more importantly, the church in Crete's potential, and took a hard conversation to establish course correction. Yeah, when, when Miss Colossos looked at me, with glasses down on her nose, over her glasses, like only grandmas can do. She wrecked me, destroyed me in that moment. But I'm so grateful for that moment as well. Because now I can look back and say she was not my favorite teacher. It was one of the hardest years that I was ever in school. But that conversation was a course correction for me. Can you just, church, can we imagine what it would look like if we, if we spent our time having God-honoring hard conversations for the sake of the gospel, rather than arguing about preferences that at the end of the day really don't matter? And I talk to some pastors. I, I meet with pastors regularly. I've got two groups of pastors that I meet with on a monthly basis, and one of the groups of pastors was talking to me about how his congregation was really upset at each other because of the color of the carpet in the sanctuary that was being changed to. Are you joking? Are you joking me? That's what we've taken from God's word. That's what we've taken as the simplicity of the gospel that we are now going to spend our time rebuking one another over the color of the carpet rather than having course correction regarding our own theology? Come on, church, I said that thing about the carpet and every single person nodded in unison, like, yep, that's the church. What a terrible, like, like what a terrible way to be known that we're going to sit in here and we're going to say, hey, you know what, man, I, I'm going to get upset about the carpet today. That's, that's why Jesus came to die on the cross, because the carpet is going to be green instead of fuchsia. Which, come on, green and fuchsia? What are we doing, church? But unfortunately, that's how the church is known in the world. That's the reputation that we have as a church because we're not willing to, to have hard conversations and course correction, and no one's willing to stand up and say, time out, does the color of the carpet really matter, or should we get busy worrying about people who don't yet know Jesus? That's where the church should be. That's what the church should be known for. Not the bickering and the politics that happen besides, behind, behind the scenes. That's what would make the church, that's what would make the gospel countercultural. Killing that stuff and pointing straight towards Jesus. It's what makes the gospel appealing, 
a group of believers committed to the idea that nothing but the gospel of Jesus matters. That's it. So everything we, go, we do, everything the church does is going to be evangelized to the world and build up the saints. That's compelling. That's life-changing. That's evangelistically and discipleship-driven body of Christ. That's what the world needs to know. Not that we care more about the color of carpet than we do about Jesus going to the cross for the entire world. So church, I would, I would beg you. I'm not saying have hard conversations with people that you don't know and take shots over the bow or whatever it may be. But be willing to have hard conversations with those people who are in your world, your small groups, your Bible studies, your family members. Establish that course correction. Lean in. And it's hard to do. I, I get paid to do it, and it's hard to do. But it's the reality of the world in which we live. The church, we've got to get sharper if we're ever going to pierce culture with the good news of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, God, I do. I thank you for, for hard conversations. I thank you for Titus and his potential and what Paul saw in him to be able to go to this church and say, hey, Titus, this is what you got to do. And in the same way, establish a pattern of belief for us, a rhythm for us to say, hey, theology matters, hard conversation matters, doctrine matters because correct belief leads to correct living. And so, God, I pray that, that we as leaders in your church, that we would be willing to have those hard conversations out of love, people that we know, people that we know that at the, the end of the day, that it's more important for people to be respected than liked, that I want people to come in and, and respect me enough to have a hard conversation. And at the end of the day, I would respect them more because of it. And your church gets stronger. And your church gets sharper because we protect that simplicity of the gospel over and over and over again. So Heavenly Father, I pray that just with that, with that simplicity, if there are those here who haven't said yes to you or those who need to say yes to you again to just kind of recommit their life, God, it's that, if that's them today, if that's you today, with head still bowed, eyes still closed, you can repeat after me and make that commitment in your life. Make that profession of faith in your life to say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That I fall short daily, and I'm sorry. B, I believe, though, that you sent your Son to die on a cross for me. For the entire world. And it's his blood that has washed my sins away. It's his sacrifice that has washed my sins away. And see, because of that, I choose to follow you every single day. That my actions would align with your word. My actions would align, God, with who you have created me to be. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.